Blog Talk Radio.
and that that wasn't the end of it. So, so real war was getting ready to begin. Well, like I said, we're glad everybody uh, everybody tuned in tonight, and uh, we'll start the show the way we always do with uh, with folks uh, calling in. Our number is three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. Any folks calling in to uh, uh, to thank their local crews, uh, thank the local instructors. Uh, Anyone who's just shot their rifleman's standard, somebody who's uh, at the PC, uh, done their first shoot, done uh, been promoted to shoot boss, anything that any of your folks have done. It doesn't have to be just that. It could be just you calling in to give us a sit rep on your uh, on your neck of the woods. All right. So once again, our number is three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. I'd like to. Uh, to thank my co-host, uh, who's here every week, the same as I am, and uh, he does a great job on making sure that that if you call in, that he gets you in line, gets your info, puts you in the queue, and uh, and gets you ready to go. So he's here every time I'm here. Uh, and then uh, I want to uh, apologize to Three Horse. For calling her brother. Yeah, that's what I said. I said, thanks, brother. She said, that is sister. Well, Three Horse, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in to the show tonight. And uh, thanks to the rest of you guys for tuning in. And for making uh, the Rifleman Radio Show one of the uh, top shows week after week on Block Talk Radio. Uh, we'd like to thank some of the folks that... Uh, and we get no... Uh, we get no money out of any of this. We're just doing it just to uh, to uplift our brothers and sisters. But thanks to the folks that uh, have called in and uh, or written us to ask that we mention them on the air. And you can do this too. If you have some kind of commercial venture and you would like us to mention it on air, we'll be glad to. We've got uh, uh, Jimmy from Desert Eagle Farms in New Mexico. He does, he has a uh, – and you can Google uh, Desert Eagle Farms. Uh, if you are interested in getting some long-term food, which everyone should have, uh, and you don't have to get it all at once. You don't have to get it uh, a year's worth this week. What you can do is just get uh, a day's worth, and then uh, two days' worth, and then three days' worth. You can slowly build up your uh, the amount that you're getting until you, until you end up with... Uh, six months or a year's worth of food. And uh, this is really important, not because there's going to be aliens or zombies or anything like that uh, in the near future. Of course, you know, there might be. I don't know. I don't know. It could be aliens or zombies in the future. I'm just saying that uh, that's not the reason you want to do it. You want to do it because you want to make sure that you are in a position to take care of yourself. You want to make sure that you're uh, able to feed yourself and your family for an extended period if there's some type of uh, interruption of services. You guys have heard me say this over and over, but there's no more than three days of food on the shelves of any store in our nation, right? Three days of food. And and that's really a stretch because if you go on day three, 
You have to lower your standards on what you're willing to eat, you know. You may be you may be eating uh, uh, laundry detergent and dog food, you know, if you wait till day three. So you need to make sure that you have uh, enough food to take care of you and your loved ones. And then usually a little buffer after that because you know that uh, you know that somebody is going to be showing up at your door, your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, somebody. So making sure that you have enough food for them too. And uh, the way to do that is to do it now. To do it now when you're not... Uh, when you're not having to uh, to try and bull your way into a a supermarket that may just close its doors on you, don't wait until whatever's going to happen happens. All right, be prepared beforehand. Don't uh, don't let yourself be filmed on national television standing on top of your house with a "Please save me" sign draped around your neck. All right, that is not. Uh, that's not the philosophy of the folks who listen to the Rifle Radio Show. So if you need some long-term food, you can go to uh, Desert Eagle Foods. Uh, uh, just uh, like I said, just Google that, and you can go to Desert Eagle Foods. <clears throat> Jimmy also puts out a product. Uh, he's a... Uh, Distributor for the Mill Dot Master, uh, which is a great uh, uh, range uh, estimating uh, uh, device. So, uh, so you can grab that from him too. Uh, we want to thank uh, Pokerface for uh, giving us the intro music that we use. They got uh, a lot of great music. You can go to uh, pokerface.com to get it. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Blue Feather and Tiles Glock out in New Mexico making handmade soap. And uh, if you need some handmade soap, you can get some from them. Uh, and uh, anybody else that wants to uh, that wants to have me, me mention your uh, uh, product or services on the air, I'll be glad to. All right, and then if you're listening, uh, and if you need some product or services that we're offering, then uh, make sure you go to an apple seed uh, brother and sister first. All right. All right, and if you're, uh, and we also encourage you to call in with a a, uh, a report from your local. How your local crews are doing, how things are going there in your local area. We'd love to hear from the folks in the different uh, uh across the states and and hear about how their local programs are doing. And then how uh and then if anyone needs any help on anything, we invite you to put that on the air too. And we have one of those coming this week. We need uh some folks we need uh some folks to help out with a shoot. In Centerton, Arkansas, I think that's 26th and 27th. And uh, I've been working on trying to get some Texas folks to uh, to cover it, but we are uh, we're really tight here too. 
uh, on the number of folks that we have available to do sheets. And we got a lot of sheets to do. Uh, I'm doing uh, I'm doing events pretty regular, and uh, and I'm trying to keep it uh, right below that point where the family dumps me. <laughs> and you should too. All right. So, uh, uh, but if you have that weekend free, then contact Sig in uh, in Arkansas and see if you can't uh, help him out on the May 26th, 27th shoot. All right. Uh, the call in number is 347-308-8790. You call in and we'll, uh, we'll get you on the air with any questions or comments you have. And uh, we got a caller now, area code 608. You're on the air. Yeah. It's Dragonfly. Dragonfly. Hey, how are you doing? I'm real good. How are you? I'm doing just just fantastic. Just living the life of luxury. Good. Good. <laughs> what do you got tonight? I just wanted to talk about um, we had a shoot coming up in Lodi, June 9th and 10th, and it's a Wounded Warrior Project fundraiser. Okay. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of turning into something pretty neat. Um, we've got uh, some sponsors that have donated donated some products to uh, for for raffles and. And such, um, Vortex Optics has donated a nice rimfire rifle scope, Armalite, uh, upper receiver, Promag has donated some stocks and some other items, and uh, Craddock Barrels has donated a barrel. Um, don't want to forget anybody. There's one more I know in there. Tech Sites donated some sites. And uh, some slings, which is kind of neat. But uh, wow. all, proceeds are, all proceeds are donated to Wounded Warrior Fundraiser Project. And Coley uh, Cat's going to be shoot boss, and uh, we've got it uh, pretty well staffed. And uh, we just need to get our, our pre-regs up, which um, I think uh, the more we get the word out, I think. Uh, the more folks will have come out to the shoot. Okay. And once again, give us the location and the date. It's at uh, Winnequa Gun Range at uh, Lodi, Wisconsin. The date is June 9th and 10th. And All right. Hope to see folks in the Wisconsin area there. All right. Well, that sounds great. How are the rest of the things going in your neck of the woods, Dragonfly? Real good, real good. Had some really nice, really nice weather, which uh, is always a good thing. Um, got a lot of shoots on the schedule. Um, lots of folks uh, um, geared up for a good season. We had uh, six shoots in at the Patriots weekend. Um, shoot, which was kind of neat. Six uh, was the most we've had in Wisconsin on one weekend, so it was kind of cool. Have you guys? Are you guys involved in uh, doing any of the uh, 
like the non-shooting events, uh, getting the Appleseed message out by doing uh, uh, like the library seeds or anything like that? Yes, yes, yes. We had, uh, um, I guess you would call it uh, a school seed at uh, Random Lake School in, uh, back in, uh, I think, uh, April, I think it was just before the Patriots weekend shoot, and uh, we had 165 students, 6th and 7th graders, and uh, we told the story, and it was kind of neat, and uh, so that was, that was did quite a few. You, did they write you any letters? Yep, we got a letter of recommendation from the uh, from the middle school principal, which was really good, and it was it was really good because uh, he's actually from the principal is actually from Boston, Massachusetts. So it was uh, it was good to be able to tell the story from from that area, and he didn't uh, didn't criticize at all. He said we did a real good job. Wow. So that was, well, I got. Uh, was, uh, did the students write you any letters? Uh, we haven't gotten anything from students yet, which would be kind of neat. Well, we had, uh, I, I did one, uh, well, I guess uh, in the middle of last year I did one, and uh, all of the teachers, now I didn't know about this, all the teachers had uh, the kids write letters, uh, you know, each one of the classes and stuff, and uh, I got a manila, manila envelope with uh, a couple of hundred letters in it, and uh, and uh, I think I read some of them on the air a while back, and uh, it was uh, it was it ran the gamut from uh, from hilarious to heartwarming. You know, some of the uh, some of the kids, you know, they didn't mean anything by it, but they write letters like uh, thanks for uh, thanks for keeping us out of the rest of our classes, all the way to uh, you know some really some really nice letters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was good, and that was that was the real neat thing about this is when we did uh, TPI, you know, uh, some uh, audience participation. They were very very well knowledgeable of what we were talking about, which which says a lot for that for that school and that curriculum. Being a public school. All righty, well. Anything else you want to get out? Any thanks to uh, to any of the rest of your uh, your crew yeah, or anything? All the all the instructors in Wisconsin. I'm um, Wisconsin State Coordinator, and they make it uh, they make uh, I think one of the most difficult jobs in Appleseed State Coordinator pretty easy. They're always willing to step up and always willing to help when needed. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a good thing. All right. Well, anything else you want to get out before you uh, before you head off into the wild blue yonder? No, that's about it for now. All right. So one more time, give the uh, give the state, the city, the date, uh, and uh, just a quick overview of uh, what you guys are trying to do. It's at uh, Lodi, Wisconsin, June ninth and tenth. At uh, Winnequa Gun Club, and uh, it's going to be a Wounded Warrior Project fundraiser. All proceeds will go to the Wounded Warrior Project, and uh, we're going to serve uh, lunch for donations and uh, just make it a good time. We'll have some uh, 
has some fun shoots, and uh, so he can uh, win those prizes that we've we've acquired from uh, industry sponsors. Okay. All righty. Well, thank you very much for uh, for calling in and uh, letting everybody know, and and just uh, keep calling in and reminding us as uh, as it gets yeah. closer so that we can uh, we can get keep uh, putting it in front of folks. And then uh, anything we can do to help out, be sure and let us know. Okay. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thank you, sir. Yep. All right. Uh, if you'd like to call in and get your information out, which we, we encourage you to do, 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. Like I said, it can be uh, uh, what you guys are getting ready to do, what you have done, uh, with your Appleseed uh, uh, project events, uh, any of the instructors or anybody who has helped out, if you want to talk, uh, thank them or talk about them, we'd love to hear that. If you have any kind of a, a commercial venture that you'd like to get on the air, we'd be glad to help you out with uh, getting that on the air, no charge. We're not getting any money out of this uh, blog talk. Although, uh, although I suppose uh, I should rethink the monetizing the show because uh, because we're getting a huge number of listeners, uh, listeners every week. So, yeah, no, we'll see about that. I don't think that uh, maybe a couple of uh, blog talk commercials in the middle of the show are going to, uh, or at the beginning or ending of the show, uh, are going to hurt anything. All right. Uh, we want to remind you that... Uh, that uh, Battle Road USA, that's the company that myself and uh, my buddy uh, Mark Martinez started up here in Central Texas. We'll be uh, running a level one, level two hanging course in uh, the uh, beginning of July. And uh, if you would like some more information on that, you can go to battleroadusa.com and uh, the level one, level two courses. These aren't baby courses. As a matter of fact, if you uh, if you uh, if you need a basic course, you can contact us, and we'll be glad to run that the day before to make sure that you're uh, up to speed in order to uh, to run through the level one, level two courses. If you go through both, they'll run about 500 uh, rounds a day of whatever your pistol ammunition is. And for more information, you can go to BattleRoadUSA.com. That's the website. And uh, you can look us up on uh, Facebook uh, and uh, and friend us or like us there. All right. Uh, if you would like to call in, you're welcome to call in uh, during the show. I'll, I'll keep taking a look at the uh, uh, at the switchboard to to see if anybody's calling in. And uh, that number is three four seven. Three zero eight eight seven nine zero. Now, what we were talking about last week was uh, the the beginning of the American Revolutionary War, and uh, we'll take a minute now to to talk about uh, American insurgents uh, because that's basically what they were. They were American surgeons, American patients, and it didn't start. Uh, it didn't start 
spontaneously on April 19th, 1775, there was a a good bit of uh, stuff that led into it. And we've talked about this, uh, oh, I guess it's been about four or five weeks ago now. We talked about this, uh, about how it began, how it it got started. And uh, there's a book that I'm reading right now called uh, American Insurgents, American Patriots by T.H. Breen, uh, Dean McCormick just sent it to me, and, uh, and he talks about this. And one of the things that uh, that I find fairly interesting is that uh, he's talking about how no one, uh, no one really talks about the folks involved. They talk about the... the uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, the, the the stars of the revolution, like uh, the founding fathers. But Appleseed, that's basically what we do. We we don't go out and we don't uh, on a uh, Appleseed weekend. We don't talk about uh, Hancock and uh, and Adams and uh, and Jefferson and uh, the rest of the folk like that. We don't talk about Benjamin Franklin. We don't talk. We don't really talk a whole lot about the Fanning Fathers at an Appleseed event because what we're talking about are the people, the people of the nation, just the regular folks, the uh, the Mother Bathricks, the uh, uh, the uh, the folks who were there on the ground uh, involved in the the beginning of the American Revolution on April 1917, 1775. is that it almost seems like he's trying to separate the people and the founders, and uh, that might be hard to do too, because a lot of the stuff that that caused the people to become aware of what was going on, a lot of the written word, uh, a lot of the ideas that were put out were put out by the founders, and that's what a lot of the folks were reading uh, that was that was helping to formulate the. Uh, to help to plant the seeds of what was about to come, uh, and certainly the uh, the people like uh, uh, I just forgot his name just now. Just it just shot in and out of my head. Uh, Thomas Paine, uh, the works that uh, that he wrote and put out. A lot of the folks, a lot of the written word was put out by uh, the founders and then read by the people. And then they took it from there, and uh, and there was a lot of stuff that went on before, uh, at the beginning and during the American Revolutionary War that uh, it was not pretty at all, and uh, and it was a lot of it was downright ugly. Uh, they've got. Uh, uh, Mr. Breen talks about in uh, in the, one of the beginning chapters about. 
one of the folks who was uh, ridden on a rail. And uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard the expression, ridden on a rail out of town or uh, tarred and feathered and ridden on a rail. <laughs> the, uh, the fences back then were made by splitting logs. You know, you cut a log that was about eight or ten feet long, and you would take a fro, which is just a blade, and you would put it uh, into the log and start pounding it, and then the tree, you have to do this while it's green, the tree would split, and then you would split it again. You'd quarter it usually, and that would give you uh, four lengths of logs to make your fence with. You know, and then you'd have a post that had the holes in it, and you would put the, uh, you would stagger the post backwards and forwards so that uh, the, uh, you have the, the, the actual log itself help, helping to hold the fences up. Well, anyway, do you think about it? When you, when you, if you look at a pie and you cut it into quarters, you've got a kind of a quarter of a circle side, and then on the other side, you have a knife edge, a sharp knife edge. And that is what the folks wrote on when they said riding on a rail. They would actually have the, they take the fence rail, put it between the person's legs, and then lift them up on it. And uh, usually there'd be a couple of folks on each side of them holding the leg down so that that sharp edge is what they were sitting on, the sharp edge of that wood. And it was very painful. Uh, and if that's all you did, all it happened to you, you were lucky because a lot of times you also got tarred and feathered. And if you know what tarred and feather is, that's where they take tar, which uh, uh, which is a blend of pitch of uh, pine pitch that has to be heated. Uh, in order for it to become pliable, it has to be heated. So you got hot tar uh, that's uh, spread on you, and it's hot enough that uh, that it wasn't uncommon for people to get uh, second and third degree burns. You're almost guaranteed to get first degree burn, but it wasn't common for people to get second and third degree burns and even to die from it because they would put that hot tar over all of their body, and they would take a pillow and shake the pillow, the feathers uh, out on them, and uh, and the feathers would be stuck to them. Now, once it got on the skin and stuff, and it cooled down and hardened, I don't know if you guys ever had tar on you before, but it, it doesn't come off. I mean, you, you can wash it off with gasoline, and I'm sure that they had, like, some mineral spirits or something that they could use, but it didn't come off. And if you got it anywhere there's hair, then that hair is coming off too. So you could be tarred and feathered and then ridden on the rail. That's where the sharp edge of the rail, you're sitting on it with just a small point. Uh, I'm sure if you you guys can imagine this, you're sitting on a on a very sharpened board and uh, there are several documented instances of this Killing the person. Uh, the fence rail, I give this as one account, the fence rail cut a gash that was uh, about six inches long and four inches wide uh, into the person, into their uh, inner thigh there, and 
and cut through the femoral arteries, and uh, they bled to death. So there were several instances uh, of these, uh, many, many of these things that had gone on throughout the colonies. And that was the way that the revolution started. This is in uh, 74, uh, the end of 73, 74, 75. Uh, and when the folks didn't, when they didn't like the the laws, uh, the punitive laws and the taxation and stuff like that, they would go out and they would uh, gather together in groups and they would tell the the, the tax collectors and the judges that have been appointed, etc. They would tell them that uh, they better uh, give up their colors, which is uh, like surrendering their flag and their, or the flag of their office, uh, and for them to uh, make force them to sign a document that they would not enforce any of the uh, any of the laws or taxes, etc. And then, uh, and then they might escape without uh, without any further damage, or they may not. Uh, there are many people who had their homes torn down. And uh, when I say torn down, I don't mean they just broke the windows out and stuff like that. They didn't some, but they would they would actually tear the house to the ground. Uh, they would uh, get axes and chop the supports and get uh, ropes and horses and uh, pull the beams down and and uh, and the house would be leveled when they got through with it. And this went on all over the colonies until it got to the point where. There were there were no uh, appointees, no British appointees that were that were willing to go out and do their jobs. And because this happened, because there was no British government that was able to rule, the colonists had to devise their own. And that is where the beginning of local governments, and then uh, from the local governments, were uh, appointed delegates sent to the. The what would become the national government, the Continental Congress, and the national government. All right, and uh, and you could look at those folks that uh, that were shooting at the British tax collectors and uh, and shooting at the British uh, ships. You could look at them and. And you could certainly, uh, certainly call them insurgents uh, at the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. <clears throat> and then that uh, led to the events of April 19, 1775. That led to the events of April 19, 1775 led to the Siege of Boston, the Battle of Bunker Hill, finally the
forced them out of Boston, and the British fell for Halifax. But as I said earlier, we knew, they knew that they were coming back. They knew that the the regulars would be back and in a big way because it was, it was not going to be that easy uh, to send the the British troops on their way. As a matter of fact, the British had been uh, working toward a response to this during the whole time that the, uh, the siege of Boston was going on. And they would be coming back. But what happened after the British were forced out of Boston? Well, there are a couple of things that uh, that went on. First of all, there was uh, uh, a contingent of troops that were sent by Washington uh, on a mission to conquer Canada, to invade Canada and capture Canada from the British. And if you read the history of that, you'll see we came within just a hair of capturing Canada and uh, bringing it into the fold of the United States. I mean, we the only thing that stopped us uh, was just uh, uh, a stray round of grape shot during the final attack uh, at Quebec. Uh, and I believe I uh, I read, and we talked about some of this uh, uh, a couple of times in the last couple of years, because this sets up that these two events. The you have first of all the campaign uh, to attack and uh, capture Canada. And this is led by uh, one of the leaders was uh, uh, Benedict Arnold. And this was, of course, before before he became a traitor and when he was a a masterful uh, American general. And uh, you have his... The, the unbelievable links they had to go through to get to Quebec uh, from Boston. And then you had their fighting withdrawal from Quebec, which uh, which ended up thwarting the uh, northern invasion of the colonies and, uh, and bought the colonists uh, a year in order to continue to prepare. And we talked about that recently because that was the Battle of Lake Champlain. But uh, let's talk right now for a few minutes about the the uh, uh, Canadian campaign, and then we'll talk about the beginning of the uh, of the the battles of New York. Uh, the Invasion of Canada, which began in 1775, was a, the, really the first major military initiative initiative by the uh, by the newly formed Continental Army. And uh, the objective of the, of the campaign was to gain military control of the British province of Quebec and to get the French-speaking Canadians to join the, the revolution on the side of the colonies. And uh, you know we have the 
the French had a large presence in Canada, and because of the animosity between France and uh, Great Britain, they were hoping they could get the French Canadians to join their side, and then uh, and then they would have kind of a united uh, army already in place there in Canada, and uh, it, it was a lot harder than they thought it was going to be. So uh, they set off in uh, like in two uh, two different forts of the campaign to catch, to uh, attack Canada. One expedition left from uh, Fort Ticonderoga, Ticonderoga and uh, under uh, Montgomery. He besieged and then captured St. John's, and they very nearly captured uh, uh, General Carleton when they uh, took Montreal. The other expedition left from uh, Cambridge in Massachusetts, and that was under Arnold. And uh, this is uh, the fork that took, uh, they took their route, took them through the wilderness of Maine to Quebec City. And uh, the two forces joined there. They were ultimately defeated uh, at the Battle of Quebec in uh, the the middle of winter in 1775. But if you remember, uh, I've discussed before the, the campaign, the fork of the campaign led by Arnold. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys, uh, uh, other than the old guy, uh, has been uh, to Maine. I've been to the uh, the wilderness there in northern Maine, but I'm telling you, uh, I think I would just as soon grab my machete and uh, and head back into the Darien jungle as I would try and force my way through the uh, the main wilderness. It is it's tight. Uh, it's a, a lot of the the brush and stuff there. You could drive, you could get your car going uh, like a hundred miles an hour, go off to the road into the brush, and uh, as long as you didn't hit a big tree, uh, you wouldn't be hurt. But your car would stop in uh, probably uh, fifty or sixty feet because the brush is so thick. It would just bring you to a stop. Now there are ways. There are things that cut through the brush, and these are our rivers. There are rivers that uh, that have cut their way through the brush and stuff like that. But they're not flowing north. They're all flowing to the south and to the coast. So in order to get get up them, you have to travel up river, and uh, and it, it's not uh, you're not in a uh, in a flat area like uh, like the rivers in Florida. All right, you're in a mountainous area, and what uh, Arnold had to do was he would have to get all of his gear, put it into the boats, drag the boats upstream. It's not like uh not like you could even paddle that well because of the current and uh and you couldn't sail. So you'd have to drag the boats upstream by ropes, by guys on the shore pulling with ropes. And uh, I've done this before and it is a horrific way to get uh, a boat upstream. 
because once again, you're not just walking down a nice sandy beach and uh, and pulling a boat. You're walking over huge boulders, rocks, uh, steep banks. Uh, if there is any bank at all, there may be just a, a cliff up with brush on it. Then you come to the waterfalls. Now at the waterfalls, now you have to take all the gear out of the boats and then chop a path up to the river where it be, uh, begins again uh, right before it goes over the uh, over the falls. Then you have to port it to your boat. Now, some of the boats were fairly large. Some of them had to be disassembled and uh, and carried up above the falls and put back together, reloaded, put uh, back into the water, and then pulled by ropes with a broom. And uh, it was just, it was a horrific way. It was just a horrific way to, uh, to, uh, to, to travel. Uh, on top of that, before they left uh, Cambridge, or they, they took folks with them who had been infected with smallpox. So the men began falling ill of smallpox uh, as they were making the trip. And uh, also remember that uh, that let's see, they left uh, they left near the end of summer. And uh, and I remember them. They're going up this river. Uh, while it's snowing, while the water is freezing, and uh, in the the fall and the early winter in May, because uh, they didn't make it to Quebec to Quebec City, and uh, let's see, Arnold left in September. All right, September in Maine. Uh, all right, that's uh, it's already getting chilly. By the time he got to Quebec, it was December, and uh, he had to travel through the the freezing and snowing weather up there with guys who began getting sick from smallpox, so they had to carry the, the sick guys, too. There's no place to put them. There's no, you can't leave them behind. There's no place, no hospitals along the way. He's in the wilderness. So they had to take the guys with them, and uh, a good many of them died on the way. So they're they're making this trek in the middle of winter to to get to Quebec and then to attack it. And by the time they got there, they had very little food left, and uh, they were basically on the edge of starvation. And uh, and in the winter, and with smallpox, and. Uh, I'm just I'm just amazed at uh, at the the enormity of this project that they took on. All right. Uh, now, this also uh, 
while this is going on, we also have uh, other events that are are beginning to gel at the same time. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, we covered the we covered the. Uh, The events after the invasion of Canada, we covered those. We'll go we'll go over them again uh, a little bit later. But uh, but the but Arnold's troops uh, met Montgomery's troops and uh, and fought the uh, Battle of Quebec in December of 1775 and. Uh, and as I said, they very nearly they very nearly uh, won the battle and uh, and almost uh, captured Quebec and and Montreal. Uh, Montgomery joined Arnold and James Livingston, who was there also, in the assault on Quebec City, and this happened during. Uh, a snowstorm. There was a huge snowstorm on December 31st, 1775, and uh, the attacking Americans were outnumbered, and they didn't. They had no tactical advantage. Uh, uh, the troops were uh, were basically worn out. I mean, they were as worn out as they could be after months hauling their stuff up the river. Uh, being sick with smallpox, being uh, uh, starving to death, and uh, and the Americans were defeated by uh, Carleton in Quebec. Montgomery, like I said, was killed during the battle. Arnold had been shot and wounded, and uh, and a, a huge number of the men on the uh, of the force were taken prisoner, including Daniel Morgan. You know, from Morgan's Rifleman. Uh, after the battle, or, or as the battle was, uh, as the battle had basically ended, and they were uh, they were trying to they were trying to reform. Uh, Arnold sent uh, Moses Hazen and Edward Andel, uh back to report the defeat and request uh, support. Uh, to support Wooster, who was fighting in Montreal, and also sent information back to the uh, Continental Congress in Philadelphia. General Carlton chose not to pursue the fleeing Americans, uh, opting instead to stay inside the fortifications of the city and await reinforcements that uh, might be expected to arrive when the river rethawed in spring. Arnold maintained somewhat of a, of a siege around the city until uh, 1776 when he was ordered to Montreal and, and he re- and replaced by General Wooster. Now, during this these months, the besieging army of Americans were still suffering horrifically uh, under winter conditions. If you can imagine winter in Quebec, you know, it's a, it's a pretty rough situation. And the smallpox uh, began to rage again because any time you have men confined... Uh, and you know, packed tightly together in camps, especially like in a winter situation, 
that they're not they're not spread out. They're all jammed into uh, whatever uh, shelter they can find, and the disease had the ability to to travel and be spread more effectively and uh, and cause a great number of uh, of losses. Now, some of the losses were offset. Uh, as reinforcements, small groups of reinforcements were arriving. Uh, and uh, and finally, uh, on March, uh, there was uh, uh, another group of, of folks uh, fighting for the British uh, that arrived and... Uh, and then they fought uh, at a battle called the Battle of St. Pierre. And uh, uh, let's see, the let me look at my notes here. The advance force of the, uh, of the uh, I would call, you'd call them the Canadians, uh, were defeated by detachment of pro-American lo- local militia that were stationed on the south side of the river. But uh, Congress, even even before it heard of the, the the defeat at Quebec, at the Battle of Quebec, had authorized as many as 6,500 additional troops for service there in Canada. But throughout the, the winter, troops did trickle into Montreal and uh, into the American camp outside Quebec City. By the end of March, the uh, besieging American army had grown to about 3,000, although uh, over one fourth of these guys, uh, probably about uh, eight or nine hundred, were un- actually unfit for service because of illness, uh, smallpox, or pneumonia, starvation, uh, and uh, and then there was also a lot of question about uh, some of the Canadians fighting on the American side that. Uh, they weren't really sure of the loyalty of those folks. Anyway, uh, the the Battle of Quebec uh, was a defeat for the Americans, and then the siege of Quebec uh, it still did not uh, result in the capture. Of Quebec, and eventually, uh, eventually, the Americans were forced uh, to retreat. Uh, let's see. All right, now let's move on to the uh, and and this dovetails right into the retreat of the. Uh, of the American forces to Lake Champlain. And this is where our, uh, Arnold, where I told you that he he stopped and began building ships, which forced the British to stop and begin building ships. And uh, he delayed them long enough until the, uh, until winter began again. And that uh, stopped the uh, that stopped the invasion uh, of the British regulars for the north. So the invasion of Quebec actually 
it is a disaster uh, for the Americans. But Arnold's actions on the retreat from Quebec and his improvised Navy, Navy on Lake Champlain where they have to get credit for uh, delaying the full-scale British counter-thrust until uh, 1777. And uh, now General Carleton in Quebec, on the, the British general, was heavily criticized by Burgoyne and by uh, his superiors for not pursuing the American retreat from Quebec more aggressively uh, but he really didn't have uh he was really not given much uh, of the ability to do so so uh, the during the at the end of the war at the Paris peace talks the uh, American negotiators uh actually demanded all of Quebec as part of the sports of war. And, uh, uh, of course, they, they, were, they were unsuccessful in this because uh, uh, that, uh, and uh, let's see, Benjamin Franklin was trying to push that through, that uh, all of Quebec would be ceded to the Americans part of the spoils of war, which didn't happen. But uh, all of the Ohio country, in the South was ceded to the uh, Americans uh, during the peace talk, the first peace talks at the end of the war. Uh, let's see. I'm going to read to you some of the some of the letters that uh, that discuss the uh, the events. In the invasion during the invasion of Canada, uh, and this is from the book Spirit of Seventy Six, uh, and it's uh, put up by Castle Books. Uh, for the Americans, Canada was really the uh, well, it was a it was a large part of the revolution in 1759. The, the fate of the continent had been decided on the plains of Abraham uh, before Quebec, and many Americans were convinced that history would repeat itself. Remember, General Wolfe uh, fought the the French, the British general fought the French there on the uh, plains of Abraham. That's still a famous battle. That uh, that the British celebrate, <clears throat> and uh, and Americans would now play the role that the British had played, and uh, they would attempt to wrest Canada from its masters by military force. And uh, Canada, which was really, uh, after all, it was a conquered province, and mainly French, would it throw off the imperial ties and bind itself to the American states? That was a big question that was going on. Uh, this And this was at first the official position. And uh, surely they thought that the Canadians would resent British tyranny just as keenly as the uh, as the American colonists has. And surely they would see that their future was inextricably 
directly tied to the future of the rest of the continent. Surely they could be won over by persuasion, by kind words, and by logic. So uh, on January 1st, 1775, Congress formally resolved that there should be uh, that there should be no expedition against Canada. And soon it was discussing the commission which would be sent up to spread the gospel of freedom. And the Articles Confederation drafted as early as 1776, but not approved until 1777, contained the, the provision that Canada, acceding to this confederation, shall be admitted into the Union. But no other colony shall be admitted unless by nine states. Right? So they're already... Uh, saying that they will allow Canada to join the Union of the 13 Colonies, uh, but no other, they weren't going to allow any other American colonies to join unless they were uh, uh, approved by the United States. They were already, uh, they were already grouped together. Uh, but on this matter, as on so many others, Congress was inconsistent. Benedict Arnold, thrust, thirsting for action and for glory, was convinced that Canada could, could be conquered that very summer and that he was a man to do it. So was Ethan Allen. In unison, though not in harmony, they had taken Ticonderoga and Arnold had gone on to St. John's in Quebec and captured uh, St. John's. Now they were persuaded they could do it again. Somehow they convinced Congress too. So on the 27th of June, Congress reversed itself and voted that if General Schuler finds it practical that it will not be disagreeable to the Canadians, he shall immediately take possession of St. John's, Montreal, and any other parts of the country. This seemed to leave out Arnold and Allen, since it was since it was written to Attorney General Schuler, but it did not, in fact, do so. So it was never easy to leave them out, of course, because uh, because you you couldn't leave these guys out. They were they were two very uh, Large egoed characters. Uh, Allen ended up joining General Schuler's miscellaneous forces gathering at Crown Point. And as for Arnold, he'd already persuaded Washington to send him off on a rival invasion uh, through Maine and on to Quebec. So they'd sent themselves off on the, they'd, they'd sent several groups together. And remember, this was, this was not. There was no already in place continental army. No army was already in place. This was uh, right when things were beginning to gel. They had just uh, uh, Washington had just been uh, put in place as a royal commander, and the continental army and all of the militias and all of the armed forces in. The colonies was in a flux at this point, and uh, and a lot of times they were they were doing things at odds with each other. But at this point, uh, as we talked about, Arnold had been uh, sent on his own through Maine and to on to Quebec. And uh, we talked about that. General Schuler had been appointed one of the four major generals under Washington, and he was in command in New York. And he did find an expedition to Canada practicable, and on July 18th reached Ticonderoga, 
and began to organize such forces as he had or could collect for an offensive against Montreal. A month later, the dashing and resourceful young Richard Montgomery arrived to be second in command. Uh, when Schuler fell sick, the command of the expedition passed to Montgomery. Not a moment is to be lost, wrote Washington, but two months were lost before the expedition really accomplished anything. Finally, St. John's fell, then Montreal. Then Montgomery prepared to march on Quebec, where he joined forces with Arnold. It reduced the ancient fortress, attached the 14th colony firmly to the other 13, and win the war in Canada. And this is how the the Americans viewed Quebec. They viewed it as the 14th colony. And in the and you can only imagine how things would go if that had been the case. You know, you know when you go to Quebec now, uh, it's still, even after 200-plus years, it's still not a, uh, uh, not a willing uh, British colony. Uh, it, uh, and there have been... Uh, there has been a lot of talk and, and and actually a good deal of action by separatist movements in Quebec, uh, wanting to be uh, independent, to be an independent French-speaking nation. And uh, when you get to Quebec, uh, you know you're there. All the signs are in French. All the folks speak French. Uh, it's it's. Uh, a whole different uh, kind of place, and the uh, we the nation would be uh, would be very different if uh, there would have been fourteen colonies, and uh, <laughs> with one being a French Quebec colony. All right. Okay, so. Montgomery, uh, he is ready to attack Quebec. Arnold is ready to attack Quebec. But alas, uh, everything went wrong. And and we know that this is a, a very common thing to do. You know, in the military, when we, we always make plans. And some of them are very detailed and very involved. Uh, even down at the uh, platoon level, even when I was running work, missions. You know, there would be just five of us, but we we would write very detailed plans of what we were going to do on the uh in the upcoming uh you know fourteen to thirty days. We'd write very detailed plans. And and there's a saying in the military that uh that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And that's that's really very Pretty much true, but uh, but you got to have a place to start, right? You got to have a plan, and uh, uh, even Winston Churchill said that uh, that regardless of how brilliant the commander or how brilliant the plans, that uh, eventually you are going to have to take into account the actions of the enemy, and uh, and of course that's the case here. Alas, with the attack on uh, Quebec, everything went wrong. Uh, with superhuman courage and energy, Arnold had brought his forces through the wilderness of Maine into St. Lawrence. But as I said, that that in itself was a superhuman feat. Uh, 
I'm trying to imagine uh, getting a uh, thousand men and uh, and tons, several tons of supplies, and uh, and dragging them up the river today, and just uh, considering that part of the mission, no big deal. Uh, uh, it would be a, it would it would end up being a a uh, an, an unbelievable National Geographic uh, event. Uh, Montgomery ended up joining Arnold there. Uh, uh, they both arrived and they were both uh, they were both joined before the city of Quebec. But the the commander, the British commander Guy Carleton, uh, had actually reached the city first. Yeah, there weren't troops at, there weren't troops there at first, and like I said, we we just barely because of the delays and stuff. If it would have just been if the if there had just been a few days uh, less delays, the Americans would have arrived in Quebec before the British did, and they would have captured the city. But they didn't. Carlton got there first, and uh, and whipped together. A defensive force, and they also had the fortifications there of Quebec uh, at his disposal, and he pretty much made the place impregnable. He uh, barricaded all of the roads uh, into the city. He had all the high ground there, and uh, had all the uh, the fortifications on him. Uh, they did attack, as I said, on December 31st, another snowstorm. Montgomery was killed. Uh, Arnold's wounded. The American forces were pretty much slaughtered or scattered. The great expedition turned into a fiasco and then a tragedy. Now, as we spoke, Congress was trying to rush reinforcements, but uh, the British were sending over reinforcements even faster. And uh, and finally, it was determined to be a, uh, uh, a no-win situation. The Americans retreated. The retreat turned into a rout, and along the way they were decimated by smallpox. And I'm, I'm sure that you guys know what decimate is, right? It's from uh, the uh, it's from a Roman practice, and that is when uh, when one of the Roman units were being punished, or maybe it was some of the captured. Uh, army or captured troops or towns they might uh, the Romans might decide to decimate them and what they would do they would have everybody line up in formation and then they would go down the line and every tenth man would be killed and that is what the decimate is from it's a uh, uh, a uh, Latin I mean a uh, Roman term uh, to kill the tenth man every tenth man and that's what happened uh, after the, in the route after Quebec. The American forces were decimated. Now, it doesn't usually run to be an exact every tenth man now, but it's real close. Your forces are decimated. They're usually reduced by at least a force of 10 to 20 percent. All right. Uh, and, uh, and the folks that finally got back to Crown Point uh, was just the were just the scattered remnants, the wreck of skeletons of, of an army that arrived at Ticonderoga. 
Carlton was ready to go on and turn the tables and to uh, drive down all the way along the Richelieu, uh, Lake Champlain, Lake George, all the way to Albany, and then down the Hudson to cut off New England and to end the war as Montgomery and Arnold uh, had hoped to do there in Quebec. Uh, he had been Arnold's nemesis, and now the tables were turned, and Arnold, with the help of nature and weather, stopped him there. Uh, Canada was not conquered and was not to be conquered, uh, but at least it was not going to be the instrument of the destruction of the American cause. Because what has happened is <clears throat> there was a you know a force of British regulars there in uh, in Canada, and as they as they found the Americans were racing to capture Quebec, they Montgomery and his forces raced and actually occupied the city a few days before the Americans got there, fought them, beat them. The city was besieged, but then a larger group of reinforcements were sent, and now this whole group was going to push south and invade the colonies and capture the, the uh, northern colonies and end the war there. But Arnold stopped that. So you end up with kind of a, uh, a zero-sum all right. Uh, let's read. Uh, let me read you a a listing of the days. All right. Uh, Abner Stocking. He was a private in in uh, General Arnold's army, and uh, he kept a diary with him. I'm going to read you a bit out of the diary. All right. Uh, September 13th, 1775. All things being in readiness for our departure, we set out from Cambridge near Boston on the 13th of September at sunset and encamped at Mystic at 8 o'clock at night. There, I guess they're on the Mystic River. We were all in high spirits, intending to endure with fortitude all the fatigues and hardships that we might meet with in our march to Quebec. Uh, the next day, September 14th. This morning we began our march at 5 o'clock, and at sunset encamped at Denver's, a place 20 miles distant from Mystic. So they marched 20 miles that day, 20 miles by foot. And this was in uh, fairly open country, and I'm sure there was a road they were marching on. On the 14th, uh, on the 15th, well, let me finish this. Uh, 20 miles distant from Mystic, the weather through the day was very sultry and hot for the season of the year. The country through which we passed appeared barren and but thinly inhabited. And this is uh, this is them marching north out of uh, Cambridge, uh, which is right uh, uh, on the... Uh, the bay there in Boston Bay. Uh, September 15th. This morning we marched very early and camped at night within five miles of Newbury Port. The inhabitants who visited us in our encampment expressed many good wishes for excess in our intended enterprise. Uh, and Newbury Port is uh, right on the right on the border there between Massachusetts and uh, New Hampshire. Let's 
September 16th, zealous in the cause and not knowing the hardships and distresses we were to encounter, we as usual began our march very early. Now, I'm wondering how, the, how he knew this on September 16th, unless he went back and rewrote it. Zealous in the cause and not knowing the hardships and distress we were to encounter, that's uh, either he is uh, uh, either he is some kind of aware or thinks he's aware of what he's what they're going to happen, some type of prescient knowledge, or he went back and wrote this. Uh, at eight o'clock, we arrived in Newburyport, where we were to tarry several days make preparations for our voyage. We were here to go on board vessels, which we found lying ready to receive us, carry us to the mouth of the Kennebec. The mouth of the Kennebec River is about 30 leagues to the eastward of Newburyport. Uh, yeah, well, it looks a, a lot farther than that, because they're going to go all the way from New Hampshire to uh, to central Maine. Uh, from on their their sea trip, yeah. Oh, Lee, okay. Because it's about uh, it looks like it's about 140 miles by sea. Uh, September 17th, still in Newburyport, ordered to appear at a general review. We passed the review, which much honor to ourselves. We manifested great zeal and animation in the cause of liberty, and went through the manual exercise with much alacrity. Uh, let's see. Uh, September 19th. Uh, this morning we got underway with a pleasant breeze, our drums beating, fights playing, and colors flying. Many pretty girls stood upon the shore, I suppose weeping for the departure of their sweethearts. At 11 o'clock this day, we left the entrance of the harbor and bore away for Kennebec River. In the latter part of the night, there came on a thick fog and our fleet was separated. At break of day, we found ourselves in a most dangerous situation, very near a reef of rocks. The rocks, indeed, appeared on all sides of us, so that we feared we should have been dashed to pieces on some of them. We were brought into this deplorable situation by means of liquor being dealt out too freely to our pilots. Their intemperance much endangered their own lives and the lives of all the officers and soldiers on board, but through the blessings of God, we all arrived safe in Kennebec River. Well, there you go. Uh, we're getting ready to uh, to go on a uh, a sea trip, a sea venture at night. So let's have a large mug of rum or two or three for our pilots, the guys who are going to lead us through these dangerous things. That's and and you find it. You find this isn't like a uh, uh, an isolated incident. I mean, this happens. It's happened quite a bit. You you have plenty of cases of uh, of folks doing this, of uh, of other groups of soldiers uh, going into uh, uh, on a battle or something, and they win a small battle, and they stop, and they all uh, they dash out their rum and stuff, and they have a big party, and then they're attacked in the middle of the night or the next morning and killed. So the use of alcohol, and I've read several books on this too, was was very, very uh, uh, widespread uh, during the American Revolutionary War. 
and uh, and I'm sure it was not uh, at all unfamiliar for them to for them to get on a boat and have a bunch of the folks leading them to the rocks getting drunk. All right, September 20th. This day was very pleasant. With a gentle breeze, we sailed and rowed 30 miles up the Kennebec River. By the evening tide, we floated within six miles of Fort Western, uh, where we were obliged to leave our sloops and to take off, take to our batus. Batus are more like the flat boats. The uh, the sloops are sailing vessels, which are designed for more for open water. Uh, are they have a deeper keel? You know, they take on more water. Bateaux uh, are flat bottom boats, and they're designed to uh, to sit high up on the water. Uh, all right. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. We'll go to September 27. This day we carry, carried our batus and baggage around to Conic Falls. The lane carriage was only about 40 rods. After launching it again and getting our provisions and baggage on board, we pushed against the stream on our way about three miles. September 28th, this day we made eight miles, but with great difficulty. The stream was in some places very rapid and shoals, and in others so deep that those who dragged the boats were obliged to nearly swim. We encountered these hardships and fatigues with great courage and perseverance from the zeal we felt in the cause. When night came on, wet and fatigued as we were, we had to encamp on the cold ground. It was at that time that we inclined to think of the comfortable accommodations we had left at home. This is only two weeks after they left, and uh, you hear what they're doing, too. This is uh, they're in the water with ropes dragging the boats behind them. On the 29th, we arrived to the second carrying place called Scohegan Falls. Though this was only about 60 rods over it, but occasioned much delay and great fatigue. We had to ascend a ragged rock near on 100 feet in height and almost perpendicular. Though it seemed as though we could hardly ascend it without any burden, we succeeded in dragging our bateaux and baggage up it. So there you go. How do you like that? They've got a jagged rock, uh, almost uh, 10 stories high, and uh, and they've got to get around it. There's no way around it. So they have to uh, they have to tie ropes onto the boats and find ways to anchor the ropes and to drag the boats uh, and he's talking here almost vertically up a 10 story cliff and to get them into the river on the other side after getting over the carrying place we found the water more still we proceeded about 5 miles and at sundown camped in the most delightful wood where I thought I could have spent the time agreeably in solitude in contemplating the works of nature the forest was stripped of its verdure but still appeared to me beautiful I thought that we were in a thick wilderness, uninhabited by human beings, yet we were as much in the immediate presence of our divine protector as when in the crowded city. Okay, October 2nd, this day we carried over 
Norwich Walk Falls, one mile and a quarter. At night, we encamped at a place formerly inhabited by the natives and afterward by the French and Indians. The former had erected a mass house for their devotions, but had deserted it at the time the New England forces made great slaughter among them in the French War. A few inhabitants were now living here who rendered us some assistance. The temple of worship contained some curiosities, such as crosses, etc. We took up our lodgings for the night and were much pleased with our accommodations. The place had the appearance of once having been the resident of a considerable number of inhabitants. Uh, okay. Let's read from the uh, the diary of Dr. Isaac Center. Uh, let's see. He picks up on the uh, 25th of October. Uh, every prospect of distress now came thundering on with a twofold rapidity. A storm of snow had covered the ground on nigh six inches deep, attended with very severe weather. We now waited in anxious expectation of Colonel Enos's division to come up in order that we might have a recruit of provisions here uh, before we could start off the ground. An express was ordered both up and down the river, the one up the river in quest of Arnold, that he might be informed of the state of the army, many of whom were entirely destitute of any sustenance. Uh, the colonel left the previous orders for the two divisions, bringing to Enos's, to come to an adjustment of the provisions, send back any who were indisposed, either in body or mind, and pursue him with the others immediately. Uh, all right, so <clears throat> let's see. The 26th, we're now within 154 com, uh, miles of the Canadian inhabitants. Uh, let's see. I've got a note here that we've got a caller. Uh, okay. I don't know what number it is. I think... Uh, uh, post, can you ch can you check uh, the two numbers? Or I'll I'll just give it a I'll give it a go here. Hold on a second. Uh, area code five zero seven. Uh, you're on the air. Hey Scout, this is Freedom V in Minnesota. Hey Freedom, how are you doing? Doing good. Uh, my daughter Charlotte is. Uh, I've talked her into. Reading her a little she bit. She ready about, to do her uh, poem for us? Sybil Luddington and the Sybil Luddington poem. Yes. All right. Well, we're ready to hear it. I bet everybody else is too. But they're we're kind of stuck in a dry part of the uh, the attack on back, and I bet I bet folks are ready for some ready for some relief from that. Loud. You got to be loud. Okay. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Sybil Ludington. Most of you may not know me. I was a Re Revolutionary War legend born on April 4th, 1761 in Yorkshire, Connecticut. I was to Frederick's Road, New York, followed by Henry Ludington, who was a colonel in the Patriot Army and who was also a spy and strong leader of the local Patriots. He was a wanted man by the regulars, a British soldier. I was the oldest of six at the time. 
What was expected of me and a girl of my time? I had to sew, weave, cook, clean, and help my mom take care of the children. I did not go to school outside of the home like my brothers. What I would rather be doing. Shooting a musket and helping stand with your team in it, man. I could outshoot men with my musket. I like to ride men with stars drive, not side saddle, as many women did in my time. I also enjoyed running my family's mail when my father was away. The Revolutionary War started in 1775 when I was only 14. Now I will read a poem that was written by Bertrand Daisy about me. This is my children, and you shall hear of a lovely female Paul Revere. We rode an equally famous ride through a different part of the countryside. With civil money seems being recalled, a ride as daring as that of Paul. In April 1777, a smoky glow in the eastern heaven. A fiery hill of warm slaughters came to the eyes of the colonel's daughter. Danbury is burning, she cried aloud. The colonel answered, "'Tis but a cloud. A cloud reflecting the campfire's red. So hush you, Sybil, go to bed. I hear the sound of the cannon drumming. Tis only the wind in the treetops humming. So go to bed as young left ought, and give no matter no further thought. Young Sybil sighed as she turned to go. Still, Danbury's burning, that I know. Sound of a horseman riding hard, clutter of hooves in the manor yard. Feet on the steps and a knock resounding as a fist struck wood with a mighty pounding. The doors flung open, the horses heard, Danbury's burning, I rode with Ford. Fully half the town is gone, and the regulars, the regulars are coming on. Send a messenger, get our men. After his message was finished, the horseman then staggered wearily to a chair and fell exhausted and slumbered there. The colonel muttered, and who, my friend, is the messenger I can send? The stranger said, you, and you cannot ride, and then you know not the countryside. I cannot go, for my duty's clear. When my men come, they must find me here. This devil a man on the place tonight to warn my troopers to come and fight. Then who is my messenger to be? Civil Ludington said, you have me. You, said the colonel, and grimly smiled. You, my daughters, you're just a child. Child, said Civil, why aren't 16? My mind's alert, my sense is keen. I know where the trails and roadways are, and I can gallop as fast as fast any masculine rider can. You are a messenger? I'm your man. The colonel's heart went to go with pride. Spoke like a soldier, loud, still, loud. God lets the devil, loud, let's sin. He fell in my slumbering troopers in. I know when duty is to be done, but I can depend on a lunging. So over the trails to the towns and farms, double delivered the call to arms. Riding swiftly without a stop, except wrap with the riding stop. And the soldiers go to a sharp cat, too, and the high tech women holler, Up, up this, soldier, you need to come. The regulars are marching, and the drum of her horse's feet as she rode pace, bring more men to the meeting place. Little grew weary, faint, and drowsy, her limbs were aching, but she still rode until she finished her task of rousing each sleeping soldier from his abode, showing her father by work well done that he could depend on a Lunnington, down in the skies to sink a pearl. And the last who rode in a soldier's bed turned home only a tired girl. Thinking of breakfast and then of bed, was never a dream that her ride would be a glorious legend of her sleep, nor that posterity's hands would march each trail she rode through the inky dark. Each half the figure and song and story as a slender, glamorous half of glory, through as long as the ages run that you can depend on a Ludington. Such is the legend of civil rides to summon the men from the countryside, a true tale making the title clear as a lovely female Paul Revere.
Long life and story did not end there. After my successful ride, I continued to be a message and spot for the Patriots. I hope you enjoyed learning about my contribution to the Revolutionary War. Thank you, Charlotte. Great job. That was a great job. So, how many apple seeds have you been to, Charlotte? I don't know. One, two? Three or four. Three or four? How old are you? Ten. Ten? Okay. I love And she's trying to talk her dad into putting a scope on the rifle for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Instead of using the she... Ten. Wow. Ten. Yeah, I had my uh, my daughter uh, when she was ten. She was doing the uh, the uh, Major Pitcairn uh, and Colonel Smith speech there, and uh, she always got excited. Uh, she always got excited because uh, she was uh, saying, uh, lay down your arms and disperse, you damned rebels. <laughs> uh, well, she did a great job. Oh, and she, just come, she just came running in because she heard her lines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, so be sure to tell her I said congratulations and thank you. Now, are you having her, is she doing uh, uh, some of the readings at the events? Um, she's read the Sybil Ludington poem at, at lunch at Two Apple Seeds so far, and uh, she's uh, kind of inspiring her dad to uh, practice his uh, dangerous old men telling, and uh, hopefully I'll be... Um, working on uh, telling the strikes. Well, that's great because uh, uh, and now make sure that when you know one of the best ways to do it. I tell the new guys that are when they're trying to figure out their their stories is you know you read to first of all become familiar with the information and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, read your information, get become familiar with the facts and stuff. That makes it a lot easier. And then uh, you can think of the of the three strike stories of all the stories of the American Revolution. You can look at it as as trying to get from uh, uh, from Atlanta to uh, Boston, and you've got the you've got the tens of thousands of miles you can walk through. And what you do is you pick the route you're going to take. You pick the route that you want to go, and you look through the stories, and you find the parts of the stories that really resonate uh, inside you. And then you sew them up together in a uh, on a trail that you can follow very easily. And that way, you, the more familiar you are with the material, and the more that you make it your own story, Instead of trying to copy somebody else's or or trying to uh, to do some uh, to do some sections that you're that you're not happy with or something, you you find the parts that resonate inside you and you follow that trail, and that way it's a trail that you created 
and one that uh, it's easy for you to remember. And once you're once it's easy for you to remember and it's familiar, then it makes it a lot easier for you to to to, to go down the trail and to tell the story, and then start uh, start telling the story uh, while you're shaving in the morning or. When you're driving from point A to point B, you can tell the story, and uh, mm-hmm. and then it'll get real easy. Or you can you can use your daughter as your uh, uh, as your audience, and it'll get really easy, you know, to do. Right. I'd also like to uh, congratulate my wife Judy, who earned her rifleman patch uh, last weekend or last at the two weekends ago at the Winona Appleseed. Wow. Well, congratulations to her. How many apple seeds had she been to? Two or three. Two or three. Two or three? Okay. Four four full days, a couple of them were split. Or one of them split a bit. But she did it faster than me. Lots of practice between them. She did it faster than me. It took me uh, more than just the four days. But, you know, you find that uh, that's fairly common because women uh, women usually don't have all of the baggage that the guys do. Uh, instead of saying, uh, well, I don't do it like that, I do it like this. They just, uh, women usually just say, well, you know what, I'm not really that sure about what I'm doing, so I'm actually going to listen to the instructor and do what they say, and bang. They get their riflemans, and uh, and you're still sitting there wondering what happened. And now I need to do some uh, some more dry fire and practice because I've been trying to learn uh, the the IIT route and have been spending more time on that. And uh, while she's been uh, getting a lot a lot more trigger time, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Well, that's the only way to keep yourself uh, current. Uh, if you're not at the range, then you should be doing your dry firing drills, your magazine exchange drills. And make sure that uh, that every time you're handling your firearm, you're no longer handling, you're, you're getting rid of all your admin firearm handling. That means you're no longer handling your firearm uh, like it's a, uh, like it's a, uh, uh, you're not handling it in any way except the way you'd be handling it, handling it on the line, ready to fire. And uh, you're um, doing your uh, magazine changes, and then you're doing your dry firing. Because when you get to the range, when you get to an apple seed, you should not be, that should not be where you're actually uh, trying to hone your craft there. That should be, when you go to the range, you should just be trying to verify that the work that you've been doing at home was correct. So make sure that uh, all you guys, that and that's it. And for a lot of folks, that's the only way they're going to stay current is by doing dry firing. They don't get a lot of time at the range. Uh, and uh, that's the only way you're going to stay current is by putting uh, three or 400 uh, rounds of dry fire uh with you and your rifle in between trips to the range. That's the only way you're going to stay current. That's certainly going to be a great way uh, to hone your skills and to get rid of any bad habit that uh, 
that you might be picking up is doing your uh, dry firing, doing ball and dummy. Well, you can't do ball and dummy in your house, all right, but you can do dry firing. Right. All right, got anything else? uh, There you go. Go ahead. Just a quick shout-out and thank you to uh, Buzz, uh, one of the Minnesota instructors who uh, over the last year, year and a half, uh, really stepped out and has been helping with a lot of uh, apple seeds, uh, not just in Minnesota, but also helping out in Iowa and other areas. And uh, he he's someone who uh, is uh, really, really uh, feels the history and the heritage, and he became an instructor and learned shooting uh, because of his love for the heritage and uh, wanting to uh, tell the strikes and pass on the heritage, and that really comes through uh, when he tells the strikes. Right. Right. Well, congratulations uh, to your wife. Uh, thank you to your daughter for sharing that with us, and tell her that uh, I'm really proud of her. And all the folks that were listening really enjoyed that, and that uh, she's always welcome to come on and uh, do a poem or a reading. Uh, she's always welcome to come on. And uh, and uh, thank you for the work that you're doing with your family and with the apple seed. Okay. Keep up the good work, Scout. Thanks a lot. Thank you, brother. And I look forward to hearing from uh, you and your family again. Will do. All right. Take care, brother. All right, we've got another caller. We've got uh, Fisher Dog 907. That's an Alaskan area code, isn't it? Fisher Dog, welcome that, to the show. Thank you, Scout. It sure is. Eagle River, Alaska. Okay. Just All right. That's what I thought. A 907. I recognize that as an Alaskan code. Well, welcome to the show, Fisher Dog. And uh, have I talked? I don't think I've talked to you before on the air, have I? No, never have. No, I've well, the show usually show through, and, through the archives. Yeah. Give us uh, give us your your thank you and your rundown. Well, I wanted to ex- extend a big thank you to Bob Two Ten and Freeman and that came up back in April from California up here to help us out, and the other instructors over last summer, the two apple seeds then, such as Campbell Junior. I'll probably leave somebody out in Savage, and Mr. Pete and V. It's just extraordinarily inspiring and a bunch of fun. And, just a great uh, thing to be involved in. And I want to thank all the local IITs, too, for their commitment and all they've uh, taught us so far. I'm looking forward to seeing them again in June. So I've been meaning to give you a call since the April shoot up here, but uh, the time zones sometimes uh, sabotage calling you at the right time. Right. And what uh, what do you guys have going on? What has been going on there since the shoot there with Bob 210? Have you all done another event there? Uh, no, no, we we haven't. Uh, the next one's June 23rd and 24th with uh, 30 slots on the line, but there are only four left. So that's the next thing that I'm, I'm aware of, Scout. Wow. And what about yourself? Uh, are you well, uh, are you in the uh, uh, in the queue to become an instructor? Well, not yet. I got to got to qualify and get my patch. I've, I've improved my shooting. I was basically a novice. Complete novice rifle shooter last July when I went to my very first apple seed. Are you seat. kidding I, me? 
No, see, I, I don't think of, oh, Ruger I see, 1022 see, for a month. Every time I, I, I think of some guy in Alaska, I'm immediately somebody with, like, a rifle just kind of strapped to their back. <laughs> well, it, it finally occurred to me uh, what I was missing out on. So, uh, just <laughs> of course, you probably some of the think things of a little later is, in life, but it's all good. <laughs> you probably think of uh, Texans, uh, like, on a horse dragging an oil well behind them. So, and whenever I think of New Yorkers, I think of, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, leather jacket and a, a cigarette in their mouth saying, what are you looking at, you know? <laughs> so, well, listen, just like I was saying earlier, uh, the best way to do this, the best way to uh, to hone your skills is going to be getting down, uh, uh, taking a few minutes. And listen, when I say few, it really only takes a few. If you say, okay, I'm going to make time before I get, after I've taken all my clothes off, and uh, either I'm butt naked, ready to jump into bed, or I put my pajamas on. Either way, it doesn't matter. You go, okay, I'm going to take five minutes. I'm going to grab the rifle. I'm going to get into my prone position. I'm going to build a stable shooting position. I'm going to execute the shot by the six steps. And uh, I'm going to dry fire, oh, you know, 15 or 20 rounds. And that's all you have to do. That's it. There's no torture involved or anything else. Just do those 15 or 20 rounds and then do it again the next night. And uh, I'm telling you, I'm guaranteeing you that if you do that uh, every night, five minutes a night, if you do that, you're going to improve your score by uh, 40 points or more uh, if you're around the 150 level or 160 level. If you're around the uh, 180 level, then you'll do at least 20 to 25 points. And uh, if you're at the 200 level, it'll push you over the top. So if you spend uh, five minutes a night, 185? Well, listen, I'm telling yeah, you, in 30, days, in 30 days, and you've got the almost, uh, what, almost 60 days, right? Uh, about July. five weeks, yeah. yeah. Well, just uh, five minutes a night between now and then will allow you to, if you're, if you're dry firing by the numbers, by the rules, that will push your score over the top at the next tackle seat. Five minutes. I'm gonna, That's all you I'll do, do it, yeah. I'll, I'll commit right. to that. All right. All right, All right. I mean, I'll be willing. To, I'd be glad to hear the uh, uh, the results of it. And you don't have to wait till then to call back, but uh, be sure and call back after the June event. Or hey, listen, uh, uh, co-host, would you uh, would you copy down Fisher Dog's number so that we can call him back after that if uh, if he doesn't call us? And what time is it right there in Alaska? Uh, it's ten to six. Ten before six. To six. Okay, so if we call you near the end of the show, you you might be home by then. Yep, that's right. Okay, all right. Yep, that would well, be fine. Yeah, that would be fine. Well, then we'll do that, all right? And you say you tell me you're going to get five minutes a night between now and then, uh, and I'm telling you, that will push you over the top. Well, I, I did some dry firing between the last event, maybe not enough, but it, that is what increased my score because it was awfully cold over the winter, and the snow was awfully <laughs> deep on the range to be getting out there very much. Although I did it yeah. a couple of days when it was about five degrees. You don't stay too long. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, doing the dry firing, like I said, dry firing is, is really the way that you're going to keep your skills uh, fresh, the way you're going to hone your skills, the way you're, gonna, you're going to shave off any bad habits that you're doing because whenever you squeeze off around well, when you're dry firing, number one, uh, if you're firing by the six, by the six steps and you're, you're, you're going right by the numbers, you're going to train yourself to uh, 
to do your site alignment, your site picture. You're going to train yourself to get to your respiratory pause. Uh, you're going to, to uh, really understand uh, the uh, 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 trigger squeeze because whenever you squeeze that trigger and the trigger breaks and there's no uh, live round to uh, mask the recoil, you're going to see if that front sight moves or not. That front sight, it should not move at all. If you're doing it correctly, it's not that hard to do. If you're doing it correctly, it should not move at all when the trigger breaks. And then once you have once you have done that over and over during your dry firing, then you're going to end up doing that when you live fire. You're going to end up doing the same thing that you just taught yourself when you live fire. So, and it's very it's a very important uh, way to keep your skills uh, intact and then to hone them and to shave off any bad habits that you've got. So make sure you're doing that between now and then. You're going to call us back or we're going to call you and that we're going to get the results, and you're going to say, I got a 225. Well, that would be a happy day, Scout. I look forward to having that conversation <laughs> with you a lot. <laughs> yep. Well, I'm telling you, it, it's, it's this is the, that's the way to do it. That's the way to make sure that you do it because you'll be, doing, you'll be making things second nature. And don't forget to do your magazine changes, all right? You, you don't have to... You don't have to spend five minutes every night, but spend what time you can because you can. Uh, are you married? I am. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. My my wife's a novice shooter. She's coming out to the June shoot with us because my oh, thirteen year old, seventeen year old. If you guys, if, if you can get her together with you, then you can guys can sit there and uh, do it in unison. So you both yeah. can sit uh, either on the couch. Make sure your rifles are facing opposite directions, and uh, and practice your uh, magazine reloads while you're uh, watching TV and uh, and get used to doing it so that you don't have to fumble whenever you're in uh, stage two or stage three. Uh, you become so adept at uh, changing your magazine that it's just uh, second nature to you. You know, you know how to, you know that when you pick it up, you know exactly how it should feel. And uh, when I say stop doing admin actions with your rifle, that's one of the things I mean is that whenever you're, whenever an, an admin action would be picking the magazine up, looking at it and then looking at the rifle and making sure that the magazine and the and the uh the magazine well line up and putting it in and you know and keeping your eye on it and making sure you do it right the whole time. That's like an admin handling of a reload. What I'm talking I about getting your admins is just is you're sitting there watching T V and you're making the reloads without ever looking down at your rifle. You're just popping one in uh, and then immediately taking it out and putting the other one in, and uh, making sure that whenever you touch it, when you touch the magazine, you can instantly tell, no matter what it is, if it's a 10.22 or a six, uh, the uh, 5.60 or the or whatever you're shooting, or 2.23, you can always the, the, none of the magazines uh, have a uh, ambiguous shape to them. Uh, they're all uh, they all have a very definite feeling to them. You pick the magazine up in your hand, and you know just by 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 holding the magazine, you know which way it's oriented. And then you can get it into the rifle and then pop it out and get the other way and get used to doing that so that you know how your rifle works. And uh, if you have a 1022, maybe you need to uh, take a little tiny bit of sandpaper and sand uh, maybe one of the, some of the edges of your 
magazines. I don't mean sand it off like getting a grinder on it. I'm just talking about barely taking off a sharp edge or doing the same thing inside your magazine well. Taking mm-hmm. uh, some uh, light sandpaper and uh, making sure that there are no no sharp edges in there to uh, grab hold of the plastic and and keep it from going in or out. And then do your magazine changes and practice doing them until you get uh, so adept at uh, the magazine change that, it, that it's second nature, that you don't have to be thinking about doing it. You're going to be doing it without thinking about it, and it's just going to happen as a natural part of your handling of the rifle. That lets you uh, focus on the other things that you should be doing, which is making an, an NPOA shift or uh, keeping your uh, keeping your position uh, squared away while you're doing the magazine change. What I mean by that is uh, making sure that uh, that you're not having to fumble around or find out or say, where is the magazine or how did it go in here? That means you've got to break your position in six different places in order to find the magazine, and in order to sort of fumble it into the magazine well. So now you've broken your position all the heck, and uh, and you've got to restart. So so get used to doing your dry firing. Get used to, get used to doing the magazine changes. And then once you've done that, take another couple of minutes and practice uh, standing up and then getting down into whatever your position is, sitting, kneeling, uh, getting into that position. You don't got to stay there forever. Just stay there for five seconds. And get out of it, and then do it again, and then that's it. You do it two or three times one night, and then that's it. You're done. And the next night you do it two or three times, and then you're done. And eventually, over the course of uh, several weeks, you're gonna end up popping down into your sitting position, and then you're gonna forget to count. And by when you start doing that, when you start forgetting to count, and your eyes aren't immediately watering, then. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. then you, you know that you're getting your body accustomed to whatever that position is. You know, sitting is yeah. it's pretty hard for a lot of folks to get into a, a good sitting position. Yeah. So so practice that between now and uh, and July. And I'm telling you, if you do those, just do those few small things, you're going to jump over the top. It's going to push you over the top. Anybody else you want to thank uh, uh, Fisher Dog? Well, just just like I say, Bob 210 and the crew that will be coming up, and uh, it's an SKS, I guess, is relocated to Alaska, so if he's here, uh, send me uh, a PM on the uh, forum and uh, be glad to connect up with him and see if he needs any okay, help. Okay, he's relocated? Into our he's living state. in Alaska now? Yeah, I think he's come from Florida, or at least was in process of doing that, so I, I don't quite know his schedule on that, but he's, wow. I know he's coming. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't realize he was moving to Alaska. That's a big move from Florida to Alaska. Yeah, I see you well, have P. Henry on, thank on the you forum for calling a few in, days ago. Fisher Dog, and, uh, and be sure and uh, keep us appraised of uh, any and all the stuff that's going on there. I want to thank everybody else who called in. I want to thank uh, my co-host. And uh, next week we'll be talking about uh, the uh, Battle of New York and uh, – we're trying to get uh, Mr. Green on to do uh, his uh, or to do his book, and we'll have be having Dr. Fisher, Dr. David Hackett Fisher, uh, coming on in about uh, four weeks. All right, thanks to everybody listening tonight. God bless you all. We'll see you next Thursday. Good night, folks. <laughs>